0: This is an RNZ podcast.
1: This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. This week, RNZ has revealed that the government will shortly be pondering a proposal for a brand new public media outfit, one that might replace RNZ and TVNZ in the process. But this plan for public broadcasting has been made without public input and behind closed doors. So what is the plan and what happens next? Also this week, former public broadcasting boss and listener magazine editor Ian Cross died recently, leaving a lasting legacy on New Zealand journalism. We look at the life and times of an editor, leader, critic and conscience of society who was also a pioneering
0: media watcher. Right now, of course, broadcasting is reflecting difficulty, it's reflecting fears, it's reflecting doubts, it's reflecting problem after problem. And so perhaps the attention is being directed... Not at those problems, but at the medium which is constantly confronting us with those problems.
1: But first, MP Shane Jones' low blow at the Indian community over partnership visas recently was followed up by others looking to score political points and opponents lining up to condemn him. But while political plays like that got the media's attention, what about the bigger picture?
2: Okay, and what is the purpose of this fake passport? So, mainly the age of this passport will be younger.
3: Okay, so why do you want a passport with a younger age?
2: Who doesn't want the who is five years younger?
1: That was part of a tense encounter on Border Patrol New Zealand, which screened on TVNZ one last Monday. Immigration officials there were grilling a Chinese woman at Auckland Airport who had a one-way ticket and a fake spare passport that was found in her luggage.
2: Explaining why she's carrying a fake
1: passport in her luggage may take longer.
2: Is this a real passport or fake?
1: TVNZ trailed that on Facebook earlier in the day with a light-hearted message. If only becoming five years younger was this easy. But it was no joke for that woman from China who was in serious trouble, potentially, according to Border Patrol NZ, even with our spy agencies. Kevin's painstaking work will be shared with the global Five Eyes intelligence network. And in the end, that woman was put on the next plane back to China by Immigration New Zealand. Now, plenty of people saw that on TVNZ1 on Monday. After 15 years on air, Border Patrol New Zealand now reaches about half a million viewers a week. And people overseas will see our immigration in action too, because Border Patrol airs on TV beyond our borders all around the world, and even on Netflix. It was a different result later, though, on Monday's episode of Border Patrol New Zealand. Customs have some concerns over
2: a frequent flyer from Thailand. After searching this person in the red zone, the customs officer suspects she's here to work illegally in the sex industry, which is only legal for New Zealanders. The officer passes her on to immigration officer James for further questioning.
1: Immigration officer James had an awkward chat on the phone with the man who had invited this new arrival to New Zealand via a dating website. James exercises
2: tact and caution.
4: If you're a little bit nervous, um, I'm definitely not here to judge. I'm definitely not here to um, put words in anyone's mouth. I just need to get to the bottom of the truth, OK? So, um, yeah, I understand that. Yeah. OK, great. But in the end,
1: it was all good, according to James. James is confident the investigation has
2: been thorough and the woman poses no risk to New Zealand.
3: I'm happy to come here to see New Zealand and see my special person. Yeah.
2: I was happy for the passenger to come through on a visitor visa today
4: and um, pursue her online relationship. Hopefully um, it turns into the real thing and I wish them the best of luck.
1: However, Immigration New Zealand has not been wishing the best of luck to others hoping to hook up here with partners they haven't necessarily met before. Last month, it was revealed in the news that Immigration New Zealand had tightened up on partnership visas back in May. Indian community representatives complained this was unfair because it was now more difficult for people in arranged marriages to get residency. And there were even street protests in Auckland about this. And Jacinda Ardern was booed at a Diwali festival, after which New Zealand First MP Shane Jones made many, many, many headlines when he told rnz this late last month
2: i would just say to the activists coming from the indian community tame down your rhetoric you have no legitimate expectations in my view to bring your whole village to new zealand and if you don't like it and you're threatening to go home catch the next flight home
1: and that was pretty galling for indian new zealanders who have actually lived here all their lives and of course have no other home to fly back to And when that response was criticised as, at best, unnecessarily inflammatory, or at worst, actually racist, Shane Jones described that as a Bollywood overreaction, and as a retail politician, he said he was entitled to hit back in such blunt terms. And his sales pitch on immigration was still echoing in the media this past week. This week, indeed, the Listener magazine's editorial accuses Shane Jones of insidious othering and damaging New Zealand as a destination for migrants. Last Monday, under the headline, Shane, you're wrong, National MP Dr. Palmjeed Palmer told Stuff she'd recently celebrated 25 years of a happy marriage, which was an arranged one, but one which would have been stymied by Immigration New Zealand's recent policy. On Saturday, though, Kim Hill heard a different view of arranged marriages from Farida Sultana from the women's welfare group Shakti.
3: You're not in favour of it.
2: No. Because? Uh, there's multiple disadvantages. When we talk about arranged marriage, um, arranged and
1: emotionally pressured, coerced and forced, line is
2: very, very thin. Between forced and arranged. Yes.
1: And last week, the project show on 3 wanted viewers to know arranged marriages were not synonymous with forced ones, and they focused on another happy couple from India.
3: Meet Ragini and Gautam.
2: I don't think we have arranged marriage because there's any evidence there's any better than other forms of marriages.
1: It's just what it is. But while the project hosts warm to them, not Shane Jones and his party.
2: For mainly New Zealand First members to suggest that this is some sort of backdoor, um, cynical way in for Indian families is just so far from the truth. It's narrow-minded, it's ill-informed and it's straight-up racist. Yeah, and actually, you know, Shane Jones is the big man with the big mouth, isn't
1: he? And if he really had any guts or any pride, he'd front up for that family and say what he said to their face. And I bet you Shane Jones would not be capable of doing that because he's a
2: gutless, gutless wonder.
1: Now many of Kānawā Lloyd and Patrick Gower's fellow front people at MediaWorks have also been putting out their personal reckons to viewers and listeners lately on this topic, but some of them have been in Shane Jones' corner. On the AM show, for example, Ryan Bridge reckoned New Zealanders' politeness made us pushovers for what he called immigration fraud.
2: Some say that we should respect their culture and open the border gates. I say no. We must respect ourselves and protect ourselves from immigration fraud at all costs. And besides, these are our rules. And on the same show one week later, the regular host, Duncan Garner, agreed. He said, um, take the next plane home? What a naughty boy. Come on. What's wrong with that? I mean, we controlled our immigration policy, not them. But then came the predictable overreaction, with Jones being called a racist. What garbage. Jones said nothing that most New Zealanders, most of us, haven't said ourselves.
1: And Duncan Garner returned to immigration last Monday with Hannah Tamaki because her newly minted Vision NZ party had just claimed it would immediately stop what it called the phony Indian marriage scheme. During an interview that lasted ten long and largely fact-free minutes, she told Duncan Garner this.
3: I think that we should focus more on um, our people. I do understand New Zealanders. Uh I see that, I know that we have an immigration um, gate doorway. I'd love to see that narrowed down a little wee bit. Um, To how much? Well, I actually don't know the figures, but say if it was uh, 2,000 a year, I'd love it to come down to maybe 200 a year. So New Zealanders get jobs, so New Zealanders get houses.
1: Now, in an almost identical interview six months ago on the same show, Duncan Garner had to tell Hannah Tamaki there were a lot more than 2,000 migrants to New Zealand each year these days, and last Monday he also had to chuck in a few facts for her
2: again. What do you think the numbers are?
3: Oh, well, I'd love to know what the numbers are. Let
2: me help you. Um, uh, It's come down a little bit, but not by much. It's about a net gain every year of about 70,000 immigrants, not 2,000. 70,000 every year we add to New Zealand.
3: Okay, well, then people may not like me, but I'd love it to be dropped right down to, say, 2,000.
2: And when asked about homosexuality
1: on the AM show, Hannah Tamaki said this. So, so you wouldn't discriminate against gay people?
3: No, I love gay people. I've got a gay friend out there that we've been friends with for eight years. He's with me. He's he's our campaign manager. That's good. His name is Javan Gold. I know,
1: he talked about it, yeah. yeah. And when Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern announced a reversal of Immigration New Zealand's policy on partnership visas this week, Māori TV's Te Ao News said that in Javan Goulter's own words, Jacinda Ardern was giving migrants the power to define migrant policy. But there was no need for Māori television to turn Javan Goulter's words into news when they were clearly nonsense. On 9 to noon's politics slot last Monday, Matthew Houghton and Mike Williams agreed that the rift between the coalition partners, New Zealand First and Labour, had actually done no political harm to either. Yeah, so it's win-win. The Labour
2: Party gets to be, um, you know, liberal and cosmopolitan and um, the New Zealand First Party gets to be anti-immigrant, anti-arranged marriage, which is code for anti-forced marriage in, in, in amongst their supporters, despite what I said earlier. <laughs> so everyone wins from it.
0: And National staying fairly quiet. Yeah, you'd expect yeah. a jack-up, really, wouldn't you? Because it's worked <laughs> out very well for the
1: But that was certainly not the way that local Indian community media outlets like the Indian Weekender newspaper saw it. The Kiwi Indian community's disgruntlement over partnership-based visas, said the editor Sandeep Singh, has been largely misunderstood and misconstrued both by some politicians and the media. For all the headlines about this this past month, very little has been written or broadcast about how the policy actually works and why and how Immigration New Zealand's implementation of it changed six months ago, yet it only became a news story and a hot talkback topic six months later. This week, Newsroom Prose editor Bernard Hickey said the row is a sideshow and a symptom – Just like the previous government, he said, this one has done little to slow arrivals of lower-skilled temporary migrants or plan for the resulting population growth, and he added graphs to show that. The real political debate, he said, should be about why the gap between temporary and permanent residency approvals is so large, and anger in the migrant communities, he said, is really about that. Shane Jones is talking tough, he reckoned, to distract from his own party's inaction. And it certainly distracted the media. Even after the government announced a Switch in policy last Wednesday. Shane Jones was back in the headlines on Thursday, proclaiming he wouldn't be cowed by his critics on immigration.
0: This is an RNZ podcast.
1: Last Thursday morning, RNZ's morning report aired a scoop by political editor Jane Patterson, which would have startled both dedicated RNZ listeners and the staff of the broadcaster itself.
2: The fate of RNZ and TVNZ may soon be in the hands of Cabinet Ministers as they consider a proposal to disestablish both broadcasters and create an entity an entirely new public media entity. The government is moving on plans for public broadcasting in New Zealand as the media industry faces an uncertain future. now That's
1: big news, potentially, and the biggest hint so far of what the government might announce before the end of the year after an ongoing review of public media funding policy. Jane Patterson reported that two other options had been considered, merging the newsrooms of RNZ and TVNZ, or putting more money into New Zealand On Air. But whose idea was this proposed new not-for-profit, partly commercial and partly non-commercial, one-stop shop for public media in the future?
4: So an advisory group was set up and that has representatives from RNZ, TVNZ and a number of senior public agencies including the Treasury, the State Services Commission, Te Pune and the Prime Minister's Department. Now this advisory group concluded that the status quo was unsustainable and it collectively recommended the government agree to disestablish TVNZ and RNZ and to establish a new public media entity.
1: The individual members representing all those outfits have never been disclosed, and neither has their advice. Stuff reported last week that Broadcasting Minister Chris Farfoy had refused to release documents about discussions between media companies and officials, citing both the confidentiality of officials' advice and commercial sensitivity. MediaWatch this week has asked the Ministry for Culture and Heritage who it sought advice from, and for details of any advice provided to the Public Media Policy Review. On Thursday, the Minister, Chris Farfoy, described RNZ's reports about the proposal as unhelpful. I am not going to go into
2: any detail until I've had a discussion with my Cabinet colleagues and made a decision. At the moment, um, as I say, we've made no secret that we're looking at it. Once a
1: decision is made, I'll answer some of those questions. Radio New Zealand Chief Executive Paul Thompson was one of the members of this advisory group, but he declined to appear on Media Watch today. I won't be making public comment about the story or media speculation surrounding it is all he had to tell us and other media pursuing the story as well. His counterpart at TVNZ is Kevin Kenrick and he leads a business that pulls in about $300 million in ads a year. And just 10 days ago, he told News Talk ZB's Mike Hosking he had no idea what the government had planned for TVNZ.
2: And my understanding is he's going to be making some announcements this side of Christmas. Do you know what he's going to do? No. So you have no idea what your future as a company is from the government's point of view? I mean, i got some ideas of what I think he might want to do. Sure. But I mean, I respect that that's his decision, not mine. No, I understand that. But he hasn't told you, so you don't know. So you're sitting this close to Christmas with no real understanding of what they're actually going to announce? No, I mean, that's, that's obviously a decision for the Cabinet. But after RNZ's story broke on
1: Thursday, Kevin Kenrick was a bit more forthcoming, though only in a statement to commercial clients, possibly spooked by the idea of maybe losing TVNZ channels as a place to air their ads. Kevin Kenrick reassured them the government's intention is to strengthen public media, not to weaken commercial media. And he also reassured them TVNZ has reinforced the value of opportunities for New Zealand businesses to build their brands and promote
2: their products on TVNZ. Like this. TVNZ remains 100% committed to delivering market-leading television and online audiences and cost-effective opportunities for your business to engage with these audiences. Now by
1: audiences, TVNZ's Kevin Kenrick means us, and he also told his commercial
2: customers... Should any decision be taken to change TVNZ's future obligations, the legislative process would likely take years to implement... Well, Kevin Kenrick is right about that, and at the moment, this is just a proposal for Cabinet to
1: consider, and there's lots more that they will want to know. The proposal includes a clearly defined public media mandate and purpose to provide public media services across a variety of platforms, some of which, the proposal says, may be advertising free. Now, this is tricky territory. A Labour led government tried to establish public service programming on TVNZ's commercial channels with the TVNZ charter back in 2003. And that failed. It also forced TVNZ to launch non commercial channels TVNZ 6 and 7 in 2008. But both of those had vanished within five years because the public funding ended and because profit focused TVNZ had no real interest in nurturing those services. Now, other public broadcasters in other parts of the world also operate a mix of commercial and non commercial services. RTE in Ireland, for example. But last week, RTE was also having to report on leaks about a planned restructuring there.
2: A stark shake-up at RTE with news of job losses and pay cuts. After being leaked last night by the Irish Times, this morning RTE's Director-General D. Forbes said it was regrettable in how its major restructuring plan was revealed.
0: We were ready to go with this plan, but unfortunately, the information leaked.
1: Peter Thompson is a senior lecturer at Victoria University in Wellington where he teaches the only postgraduate course in media policy in New Zealand and he's also the chair of the Better Public Media Trust, a group which advocates for policies and funding to support public interest media. This week, Better Public Media cautiously welcomed the prospect of a new public media entity replacing TVNZ and RNZ. So this week,
4: I asked him why. There's been a a public service-shaped hole in our media ecology ever since the closure of TVNZ7, which is actually the first campaign that uh, really kicked off what's now become Better Public Media Trust. We think there's a demand still for a a full range of public service provisions across all platforms. And so television has been the the conspicuous absence in in, in this for, for many years So the things we don't know at the moment, though, is exactly how the structure is going to work if if it goes ahead, uh, the funding basis, and also its governance. So I think there's all sorts of questions that need to be answered before we could confidently say this is a great idea or it's a recipe for disaster.
1: You referred to there being a kind of gap for what's provided to the public in terms of broadcasting, but this advisory group, which has put the proposal that we believe the Cabinet will consider next month, said the impetus for them was that the status quo was not sustainable. What do you think they believe
4: is actually not sustainable? Because it isn't entirely clear to me. Well, well obviously, I wasn't part of that group, so I I can't speak directly for them. But I suspect what they're getting at is the role of TVNZ. At the moment, it's still a a Crown-owned company. It's uh, currently on a a commercial operating basis. The question is, if TVNZ is no longer pulling in a profit and paying dividends to the Crown, then what role does it have? I mean, why would the government own a public broadcaster that operates commercially but doesn't actually make a profit? So uh, I think the, the question would be how, how to, to restructure TVNZ so that some of its operations could start taking on a public service character. What we don't know is exactly how far the government's willing to go with that. MediaWorks, for example, has been calling on the government to turn TVNZ1 non commercial, which seems quite generous, but of course their motive here is that by losing. Roughly $150 million worth of advertising, uh, that would be an enormous boon to the commercial TV sector because they could then compete for that. But whether the government would be willing to stump up $150 million to then replace all the programmes that were lost because of the, the loss of advertising. And we actually, don't know. In each
1: year of operation, at currently. It, is.
4: Absolutely, it would be an ongoing cost as well. Uh, plus, you'd have to persuade the Treasury that it was a good idea to dilute a crown asset.
1: TVNZ has kind of rebadged itself in the last couple of years. So now they're not making money for the crown, mm-hmm. and so they won't for the foreseeable future. But they say, look, we are the place where you will see New Zealand content, New Zealand programs. They say we're fighting back against Netflix and international providers have no interest in local content. Have they been quite cunning here and presenting themselves as a kind of national resource when really they're still
4: a highly commercial uh, media company? Well, I think it it really comes down to what what becomes a competitive point of difference in an environment where really the the local free-to-air television services can't afford to compete directly with Netflix and and, and the other big subscription providers for premium-level content. I mean, when when you've got so many new competitors all demanding that top-end content, of course, the, the price goes up enormously. Now, TVNZ, of course, managed to to win the rights to the Rugby World Cup, but it did so because it partnered with a big telecommunication company, Spark. So the point of difference that the free-to-airs can offer is, of course, local content. Now, the difficulty with this is that the opportunity costs of actually scheduling and producing local content is itself going up. So it becomes a challenge to maintain a full range of, of local content without substantial funding. So we don't know if, uh, if TVNZ... Is really going to pursue a, a public service model under this current proposal, but but you know simply simply running some local content doesn't make it a public service provider. I think that's the fundamental point. Do
1: you see a big risk in if they go ahead
4: with this, creating an entirely new body with some
1: sort of new name, presumably? Um, you've got TVNZ and RNZ, best known, longest established broadcasters, mm-hmm. biggest audiences in the country. Um, your surveys say
4: most trusted. Um, huge risk, isn't it, to create something replacing those two? It it could be. Again, we we don't know what the new structure is going to be like, whether it's an umbrella organisation that has a new name, and actually you retain, for example, the the channel names independently of of the overall structure name. But if you restructure the organisation in such a way that we, we lose the current brand value of, for example, RNZ National or TV One, or if they actually became just a blurred multi-platform operation, then, then I think there could be a risk that they lose their distinctive character. And that would be reinforced enormously if, for example, the funding model was, was, was hybrid. So you start introducing commercial, commercial funding into RNZ programmes, which I think would be a disaster. Now, you wrote an opinion
1: piece for Stuff this week. Uh, Will the old lessons be learned? Was the heading they put on. What are the lessons?
4: (laughs) Well, I think the lessons are threefold, really. I mean, the first thing is that you need a very clear demarcation of what is intended to be a public service uh, versus what is meant to be a commercial service when if you go and look back at the old TVNZ charter model I mean, there was, the charter itself I think was a great idea but it was never funded properly and it got very very murky in terms of, of d- discerning where the money was going and exactly whether it was going to, toward public service types of content or just being a bung to make more, more commercial content so that was a problem I mean the second key thing is that the the level of funding has to be proportionate to the policy vision. I mean, in the TVNZ charter case, it wasn't. In fact, uh, the government took more out of TVNZ in dividends than it actually gave TVNZ to do the charter, which certainly wasn't sustainable. So, you know, if, for example, we want TV1 to become non-commercial, then the government may, may well have to bite the bullet and say, right, well, that is going to cost $150 million a year, and if they think that's worth it, well, great. And then the third thing is governance and by that I'm getting at the, the, the ability of senior management and a, and a board to steer a clear course between any, any commercial and public service objectives and to make sure that, for example, the commercial side of, of the new entity doesn't cannibalise the public service side. So actually a board of governors prepared to direct
1: and instruct the management exactly what they want them to do?
4: Well, at least to provide a clear steering line so, so that you know, the, the, the internal ring fencing of, of the public service provisions doesn't, doesn't get muddied by the demands of the commercial side. I think if it was all a hodgepodge where certain bits are commercial and certain bits are public service, but nobody's really quite clear where the lines are, that would be a a potential recipe for disaster. The language
1: that's worrying some people is this mixed model. So some commercial services, some not, not being at all clear where they are. And the track record, as you said, of trying to put public spirited content on a commercial television network be it TVNZ or TV3, whatever, has not been especially effective. But other countries uh, do do this. Um, For example, Ireland, uh, it's public broadcaster. RT has some Mm -hmm. channels that takes uh, commercials. Um, Denmark has one, for example, a a second channel, uh, which I visited some years ago now, but... They had commercials that didn't interrupt the programs, Mm -hmm. uh, and they innovated. They really did do popular programs. Some of them became international hits, copied overseas um, formats and so on. So uh, in those cases, uh, right now, RTE has a massive financial crisis just this week, as we heard earlier. So that could be a worry. But, I mean, if other countries do this, is it something that you could look to and say,
4: well, it could work? It's not impossible to operate a a public service media uh, system based partly on commercial funding. But it's a matter of proportion. It, certainly you would need to, to have at least, I think, 50% of the funding coming from public sources to, to make a significant dent in in the commercial priorities. And there's always a tension there. So I, ideally you'd, you'd move towards a model that, that provided maximum level of public funding uh, and a minimum level of commercial funding. So, for example, Murray Television is probably over 95% publicly funded. And even then, the the... the Small level of commercials that they carry do sometimes influence you know, decisions about scheduling and, and programming. So there's a corrosive effect of of commercial funding on on a public service mission, and it's probably directly proportional to the amount of of commercial dollars going in versus public dollars. You know, so if, if for example we started introducing uh, com- commercial commercial advertising on Radio New Zealand. I mean, straight away, you'd start factoring in considerations of audience demographics and whether or not the program, you know, was, was appropriate to, to a sponsor's product. You know, and, and those, those considerations would, would often push out the, uh, the, the balance of programming, for example, for minorities, and, and some genres would get pushed out of prime time. Um, I think it's telling if we look at the TVNZ7 model, because that was fully funded from government, it offered a completely different schedule to the mainstream commercial channels at the time. I mean, there were all those programmes, for example, on the arts and literature, on the courts, on, on the media, on politics. None of those would, would, would really survive in a, in a commercial environment. So the lesson is that if if you want a hybrid model, you need to clearly demarcate the, the, the functions that you want as public service and insulate them very carefully from commercial pressure and and the model as a whole has to have really a majority of of its funding coming from public sources as soon as you drop before, below the fifty percent margin, uh, I think you 've really just got a, a, another commercial operator
1: and this proposal for a new public media entity that we believe will go before cabinet uh, very soon i mean it 's a public broadcasting plan which could have effects lasting decades if it was put into place. But it's been done without public input. Behind closed doors, we don't even know the specific individuals on the group that have collectively picked
4: this as the option to put before Cabinet. Does that concern you? Well, uh, I think really from the point where Minister Farfoy took over from his predecessor, Clark Curran, he's taken a long time to to develop his, his thoughts about the direction of, of public media policy, and this particular news about the, the the new model came from a leak, of course, I mean which suggests that perhaps the the thinking and deliberations around the policy haven't yet been finalized. Now, whether this prompts them to bring forward some announcements and, and make it clear what the what the new proposal really is, I don't know. But what I think we're, we're seeing is a plan that could potentially be quite commercially sensitive. Certainly if it was going to, for example, decommercialise part of TVNZ, so that may may be a reason why the plan has been played very, very close to the government's chest. What I would certainly hope, though, is that there would be an opportunity for some level of public input on the plans when they are actually announced. That was Peter Thompson,
1: Senior Lecturer at Victoria University in Wellington, and also the Chair of the Better Public Media Trust, which advocates for policies and funding to support public interest media. And next up on MediaWatch, a look back at the career of an editor, author and critic who, as a public broadcasting boss 40 years ago, presided over the creation of TVNZ and regretted it. Back in the 1970s, the Listener magazine was a hefty publication in terms of its size and weight, as well as its cultural and political influence. It often sold more than 200,000 copies each week. Astonishing, considering there were only three million of us back then. And that was partly thanks to its monopoly on the TV and radio listings, and also the much-anticipated arrival of a second TV channel. But also, the range and vigour of its journalism was part of the appeal. The editor for Five Fruitful Years from 1973 was Ian Cross, who died earlier this month at the age of 93. From 1975 onwards, Ian Cross was often at odds with the Prime Minister Robert Muldoon, who reckoned the listener leaned far too far to the left, and he was even criticised by some of his own staff, some of whom reckoned he and his editorial stances were too conservative. But Tom Scott, who prospered at Ian Cross's listener and also got up the nose of Mr Muldoon, told the New Zealand Herald last week Ian Cross changed New Zealand journalism by fostering young journalists back
2: then, including himself. He was a very tall, very charming, very handsome midwife to a whole maternity ward of emerging talent. So his influence on New Zealand journalism via other people more than himself was extraordinary. In the
1: Stuff Papers last week, writer Philip Matthews said Ian Cross was one of a handful of New Zealand editors who was on a mission to shape New Zealand culture and national thought, and he said the listener was a genuinely national magazine. Here's how Ian Cross himself described that mission in an
0: RNZ Insight programme back in 1979. My whole view, uh, editorial view, was to begin from your readers, begin from your country, begin from your country's people, and express their reactions, explain them. Uh, sympathetically. Sometimes this took me uh, strongly against prevailing trends, but I didn't mind that. But by doing this, I think I struck for the magazine a chord of recognition uh, among many people that hadn't read the magazine before. Somehow or other, they felt represented by the magazine. Uh, I don't care whether the strong view is from the left or the right. I think New Zealand society needs stimulating, needs enlivening. And we need to be more conscious of uh, our own opinions, uh, and uh, one way of achieving that consciousness is to be uh, exacerbated or annoyed by the opinions
1: of other people, if you like. Ian Cross there on rnz 's Insight, back in 1979. Now, Ian Cross had started out as a cadet journalist in the 1940s, and in 1964 he became a regular on Column Comment, the first New Zealand television programme to critique the media. Here he is in a 1967 edition, taking the papers to task for lacklustre coverage of political leaders.
0: They appear at present in cartoon outline only. The Prime Minister in bolder lines, because he's been around much longer as a national figure. Mr Kirk, an insubstantial line drawing in the background. No wonder there are gaps in the public knowledge and understanding. Two years later, on column comment, Ian Cross
1: looked at claims that the creeping conservatism of newspapers was excluding alternative viewpoints at a time where there were lots of those around. And here, he's responding to this startling statement from the publisher of the New Zealand Herald.
2: The policy of our newspapers here might be ultra-conservative politically, but they give space to the views of radicals, liberals, socialists and
0: crackpots.
2: I think this is a very true and significant statement. Our papers do. And just how much space is given is partly up to the intelligence and the political knowledge and the hard work of our radicals, liberals, socialists and crackpots. But to a certain extent the game is stacked against an opposition or minority group. The establishment, or a national government, can depend on a sympathetic response from the papers.
1: As the editor of The Listener later on, Ian Cross aired similar concerns, and he also made the readers think about news and broadcasting. This is part of an editorial from March 1976,
2: which could easily be written today in 2019. Television has brought the strong influence of show business to news, to the detriment of the social purpose which should imbue its dissemination. Skilled publicists and manipulators of events also make people weary and vaguely mistrustful of what is offered to them by the media. But while all that and more may be admitted, much criticism is not justified. Not long after writing that, Ian Cross was put in charge of TV and public radio
1: as the chair and chief executive of the New Zealand Broadcasting Corporation. And the late 1970s and early 80s were turbulent times there. He oversaw the creation of TVNZ, merged out of TV1 and the second channel South Pacific TV, later TV2. And when that controversial move was imminent, back in 1979, Ian Cross talked to RNZ's Sharon Crosby about there being too much coverage of the media in the
0: media. I took a swift count of uh, metropolitan newspapers and found that despite the awesome problems confronting New Zealand, indeed the whole Western world, they were devoting more space to broadcasting and its problems. Now, this is totally out of proportion. We should be about, I don't know, seventh or eighth in the priority of our national attention. Currently, we seem to be running first or second.
2: Why is it so important to us?
0: I used to think that it was uh, uh, a miscalculation on the part of... Population of New Zealand and indeed on the part of the the, the politicians. Now I'm beginning to wonder whether there isn't something of symbolic importance to uh, broadcasting. I guess it's become to our society what the nervous system is to the individual. That is, if your nervous system is working well, reporting accurately, responding and giving you a perspective on the world, you feel healthy and happy about it. Right now, of course, broadcasting is reflecting difficulty, it's reflecting fears, it's reflecting doubts, it's reflecting problem after problem. And so perhaps the attention is being directed not at those problems, but at the medium which is constantly confronting us with those problems.
1: The late Ian Cross there speaking as chief executive of the Broadcasting Corporation of New Zealand in 1979. Ian Cross's ultimate plan was to end competition between the two state-owned TV channels and carve off one of them as a non-commercial public broadcaster. But he didn't get his way under Muldoon's government and he didn't survive the switch to the fourth Labour government in 1984, as Geoff Robinson pointed out on Morning Report at the time when Ian Cross quit the following year.
0: Several months before last year's snap election, David Lange said that Ian Cross would, as he put it, find it convenient to resign under a Labour government.
1: And in those circumstances, it wasn't a surprise that Ian Cross went on to tell Jeff Robinson this.
0: My single greatest lesson of my time has been that broadcasting does best when it is left alone, uh, when it is free of, no matter how well intentioned, outside uh, influences on how it should be conducted, mainly political.
1: Once he was out of broadcasting, Ian Cross became a big critic of New Zealand's television model. In January 2000, he
2: told the New Zealand Herald this. Looking back, I created a Frankenstein's monster. Television is the most pervasive and democratic medium in any country. Every Western country has a non-commercial television service. We haven't. In a
1: tribute to Ian Cross published last week, a listener editor who followed in his footsteps more than 20 years later, Finlay MacDonald, said that Ian Cross had once described free market TVNZ as a hooker who walked the marketplace with the government of the day acting as her pimp by taking a share of what she earned. Finlay MacDonald said last week that when you live to almost 94, you do tend to outlive some of your dreams and ideas. But he said that Ian Cross also succeeded in championing a confident, inclusive national culture and also in becoming part of it. That's all we have for you from the Media Watch team for this week, but we'll be back again at about 10.30 next Wednesday night, talking to Karen Hay on The Lately Show with Midweek Media Watch, and then back again at the same time next Sunday with Media Watch, here on RNZ National.